What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Champion School Podcast. I'm your host, Austin Byler, and today a very special guest, Tony Capicelli, uh, one of my good friends, former Wolfpack alum. Let's go, Pack. We're rolling it in. Played at the University of Nevada. Got the coach at New Mexico, UNLV, a bunch of different programs in college, as well as now the professional level, level he'll be managing in Ogden tentatively this summer, as long as everything goes as planned and, and as we hope with the Dodgers organization. Um, was a coordinator last year. He's been at so many different levels, which is incredible because we get to hear from somebody who's seen it all, not only from a player standpoint, but from a coaching standpoint, a very big into the leadership. We were talking off, off the podcast about just using this time to develop our skills and reading books and, and really developing um, that leadership aspect to, to enhance cultures when we get back to where we're at. So, Tony, welcome to the show, my man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely, brother. Well, it was good to see you again. I know we were on the call last week, and um, you had some great insight for some of the athletes that were on there, some of the coaches that were on there. So it was really cool to see, man, just you popping in, taking the time out of your day, and, and being able to just provide some wisdom for them because you've been – to some really cool places. You played under some really cool coaches, and now you're in the Dodgers organization. So kind of take us through your background, man. Where's, where did all this spark? I know you played at the University of Nevada. I had a great career there. Um, where did you really develop this passion for coaching, and how did you get into this? So I knew I, knew I was going to coach um, like when I was in high school. I mean, the, the plan was to coach when I was done playing. I was obviously hoping for a little bit longer of a playing career, but it, uh, it didn't work out that way. So when I got done playing in college, I went out, um, you know, started coaching right away. Um, I got my first job was a, a high school. I was a head freshman coach at Edison High School in Huntington Beach um, in 2004. Um, then the next year, I was a head varsity coach up in the state of Washington and then went back to Edison for four more years. So I had six years of high school. Um, you know, I always, always wanted to get into Division One baseball. That was kind of my goal. Um, and I was over in Germany in the summer of 2009 and got a got a job at junior college in Southern California and stayed there for four years and, and did the summer ball. Uh, I did a year in the Cape Cod League. I did four years as a head coach up in the Alaska League and finally got into to UNLV as a volunteer assistant and spent a year there and then moved on to the University of New Mexico and spent three years there. And then uh, in the summer of 17, came out and, and joined the Dodgers. It's incredible. So I, I didn't even realize that you were still a high school coach when you first started this whole thing, a head freshman coach. So you went from head freshman coach to varsity to junior college to a division one level at two different places to now in professional levels. What are some of the differences that you've seen and some of the similarities between the athletes at these different levels? One, and then to follow up on that question, the culture and how to instill a culture. I think that the biggest difference is obviously the obvious that like, given of the skill set between freshman ball and, and division one baseball. And then, you know, the guys in division one baseball coming into professional baseball, uh, just the way guys attack like their day-to-day -day business is, is different. You know, there's guys, especially early on in their careers, their baseball time is, is when you're at baseball practice. As you start getting older, you know, as you know, you get into college baseball and you're being told like you're going to work out at six o'clock in the morning or earlier, um, you know, and then you're going to go to study hall and you're, you just have a little more things on your plate. You know, you've got things that you have to be um, very regimented. You have to be very good with your time. And so a lot of those guys, when they get into college, have a really good or develop a really good system for time management. 
and hopefully that carries with them into their professional careers, um, whether it's in baseball, outside of baseball, whatever it might be. And then you get into professional baseball, and there's a little bit more freedom. So guys have a little bit more freedom to kind of handle their own things. They know they've got to get certain things done every day, and it's up to them to get it done, um, mostly when it, when it works out best for them. And that way, once our workout starts every day, they're ready to prepare at their highest level. And then that night, go out and compete at the highest level because they know that their their goals and aspirations are you know, still still a little ways ahead of them. Hundred percent, man. And you've now you've seen these different levels, and um, the time management I think is huge, especially going from a high school kid to college. And for me, going from a senior in high school to college and having three classes my senior year in high school, where I was out at twelve o'clock. And I could kind of do whatever I wanted till 2.30 at practice, which was only two-hour practice, to college where we have Coach Gary Powers, who you got to play for as well. We both got to play for him. And you talk about old-school mental toughness, man. Like, I love CP now, but when I played for him, man, I was hating my life. I'm like, is this really college? Is this this? And all the life lessons that he taught me were incredible. Very grateful for Coach Powers and the things that he he taught us as athletes, as people in life, to battle through transitions, to battle through tough times. But if I said it was easy, we'd be lying. And I know you probably felt the same way when you were at Nevada as well, man. When it's 10 degrees and it's windy and it's cold and you have to show up at 5 o'clock in the morning to wait and then have CP out there on the track running you. <laughs> um, that, was, it, it, it was, that was a no, no joke. And, you know, you go from – I think a lot of people lose sight of the fact that when you go from high school to college – you get there and everybody has that, that goal, that aspiration of playing division one baseball. And it's, it's a blast. It's a great environment. It's, it's a lot of fun, um, a lot of hard work, as you know, and it, it's very challenging, but you go from being like the dude on your high school team to just being one of the guys there, you know, you go from being that 17, 18 year old kid that was the best player on his high school team. And, you know, you think you're pretty sweet going into college and you don't realize when you go in at 18, like there's some dudes that are there that are 22 years old that have been there for four years. And, you know, they, they know what they're doing. They've got a better system of doing things. You go back to being that young pup that doesn't really know what you're doing. And you're being led by, hopefully being led by some guys with some, some experience and some, some ability and some knowledge. And uh, your perspective changes really quickly when you have to go back to being that low man on the totem pole again. Yeah, it's, it's, totally, a, it's totally an eye-opener especially for a, a guy who came in there for me i went in there i remember vividly I, there was a senior on our team he was sitting in there there was ray mcintyre who was a senior and now he's a coach at university of san diego great friend of all of ours and i walk in with a tank top and earrings in <laughs> tank top and earrings and they're like dude who is this guy like what is this guy doing had no clue what i was getting in for and then next week it's all right guys 6 a.m weights we're gonna get in there and then we got conditioning on the track and it's just an eye-opener. Now, what advice, before we kind of get into that, I guess, like, what advice do you have for a high school kid right now or even a college kid transitioning to professional baseball when you're transitioning to another level and you go from being the top dog in your organization, whether that's high school, um, middle school, college, or even now in professional, what advice do you have for somebody transitioning to that next level? I think ultimately you have to know yourself better than anybody else can. You have to know what makes you tick. You have to know the things that you have to do to make you successful. You know, if you're struggling with understanding your own identity, then it's going to be more of a challenge. If you have a better idea of what you need to do to be successful, you can use those tools that you have going into college and learn more tools and more 
uh, gain more knowledge um, and more perspective through the years that will continue to make you a better player. But if, if you don't know yourself and what you need to do to prepare yourself to go out and play and, and practice and do all the things you're supposed to do, keep track of the little things like the study hall, the classes, like the little things that you don't realize you have to do that are kind of side um, uh, responsibilities that you have to be aware of. You know, if you're not able to do those things, those things can speed you up really quickly. And then you lose all sight of what your actual goals are, you know, just within the sport. So staying consistent with your preparation and, and your, your planning, I think really helps guys as they're moving on to another level. Now, do you think, because you were at the high school level too, and at the junior college level, where you send a lot of guys on to that next level, whether that's Division One, Two, Three, or NAIA, um, we know there's a ton of great programs out there at every single level. There's a ton of opportunity, especially at these different levels. You don't just have to go D1 to get drafted and sign the big contract. You can go anywhere. As long as you perform, people are going to see you and know who you are. So when you have these athletes going through this and they're transitioning, where does that preparation come from? And, and you can speak even from your playing days and, and now coaching days. Does it come from the, the head coach, the top dog, like that leadership role? Or is it more induced by that specific athlete to develop, hey, here's your responsibility, develop a preparation for yourself that gets you ready for the game? What do you think? I think, I think for a lot of guys, it comes from the head coach or the, the coaches kind of creating that culture of allowing guys to prepare themselves you know, obviously when you're younger, you don't know how you're going to do it, but it's okay that you're going to fail. Like it, you don't have to go through this without failing. And you're, you're 14, 13 years old and you're preparing like a routine. That doesn't mean that what you're doing at 13 and 14 is going to be the same routine that carries you in through college and professional baseball. You know, guys are working hard on their swings to help become a better hitter right now. They're trying to become a better player right now, but that swing you have at 13, 14, 18, 20, that's not going to be your swing that gets you to the big leagues. That, that's going to get you more opportunities and it's going to help you hopefully have success. But if you're taking the same swing at 20 as you were at 13, you probably haven't gotten a whole lot better in those seven years. So it's, it's always constantly adjusting your, your swing, the style of play, like how you play the game, the, the information that you have um, that you get access to and how you use that information to become a better player. So I think, using all the tools around you and, and understanding that as coaches, you have to promote the idea of players having a routine and you have to allow them to go through their routine on a daily basis. doesn't mean you can't coach them, but for coaches, we have to allow players to go through that routine and get them used to having one. And for players, we need to set a routine and understand the importance of being able to stay consistent with that. Love the aspect that you mentioned about the coaches uh, empowering the athlete to set their routine and to go through their routine and find something that works for them. Like you mentioned, your sw same swing at 13 is going to be different when you're 23 in the pros mm -hmm. or 19 going into college. It's, it's going to change and hopefully you adapt and get better and more advanced with whatever routine it is for you specifically. But you mentioned something that like, I really want to touch on and that's the culture, like developing a winning culture. Now, as a coach, you've been at, at all different levels. You've had different roles within each one of these levels. I mean, from a volley in college to being a head dog, now a manager at the professional level, which is incredible. Like, how do you set the tone early and how do you develop that winning culture within a program? For us, we're really lucky because we have, we have really good players and we have really good dudes. That, that makes it um, a lot easier. Again, understand like what we're coming from versus what a lot of people are coming from with some of the resources that we have, the people we've had, the success that our organization has had from the big leagues down, 
you're walking into a winning culture. You get drafted by the Dodgers and you're walking into a winning culture and there is just an expectation the players have on themselves that they're going to go out there and they're going to be Dodgers. And what we've seen in the last, you know, recent however many years, like there's been a lot of success. So there's that already kind of built in standard of what we, I mean, what we want to have, like there's an excellence there. It really is. Um, but if you're in high school, if you're in, if you're in college and you're trying to really set a culture, I mean, it really comes down to what, as a coach, what you want to try and get out of your players. You know, if you're dictating to them every single aspect of what they need to be doing, you're not putting any of the ownership on them. You're not allowing them to really play with a, with a um, fearlessness that you want guys to go about it with. You're, you're holding them back. You're, you're taking away some of their athleticism. Um, you're taking away their ability to make adjustments on the fly. Um, you're, you're really just kind of handcuffing them if you are dictating to them what they are supposed to do all the time. If you can kind of take those handcuffs off and let them fail and promote failure and have them like fail a lot, fail fast, because you're going to learn a lot from that. And there's nothing wrong with it. it it's like getting into practice settings and you see guys a lot and, and you see coaches harping on players about, practicing better well yeah that's great but are we trying to create perfect practicers or good game players so you can go in and guys are guys will adapt on their own and they're going to find ways to beat drills but if you set a culture of like we're going to get our work done and then we're going to go play the game and we're going to use the results from the game and then we're going to readjust our practice model and then from there it's just constant development and constant improvement um you know the, the players start to respond a little, a little bit better in that aspect also understanding that players have to see that you are invested in their development. If you're not invested in their development, the players just go out and, and do it more for themselves, understandably. So as a coach, you, you have to invest in your players. You have to invest in their development overall as young men, as players, in, in every aspect. Because for a lot of these guys, we get them at a very, um, very important developmentally, uh, very important time of their life. And we as coaches can have a huge impact on those guys that can that can be a lot longer lasting than just the season you might have. Them. Yeah, you mentioned just investing in your players. And that's something that some of the best coaches, managers that I've had throughout my career have invested in us more than anybody that I've ever had in my life. And like you mentioned, we get them at a critical role in their careers. I mean, a lot of these athletes are in, I mean, for most people listening to this podcast, they're, they're coaching athletes anywhere from 16 to 25. And that's a massive role for us to develop these young men to go into society once the sport ends to be leaders and to go out in society and to understand who they are. You mentioned the identity earlier, which is a huge piece that I want to get into here in a minute because I love identity. I think it's your internal thermostat. I think it's what fires you up and what lights you on fire every day. And it's your purpose. And like we mentioned off, off cast here, you're getting up at 5 a.m. listening to coaches that are coaching, I think you said rugby or the Team Canada, right? Canada football or something yeah. like that, Canada rugby? Australian rules football. Australian rules football, man. Get into that yeah. real quickly. What have you – we got to – this is a sidetrack, but what have you learned from a, a, a sport that is totally opposite of what we're coaching and what we're involved in? So the biggest takeaway off that is just listening to guys talk who have experience in, like, European – sports or Australian rules football, which if you've never seen that is the most exciting game I've ever seen. I got off the phone with him. I, I got on YouTube. I checked out Australian rules football. I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Um, but, but understanding also like our game is so unique because we're playing every single day. Those guys, you know, they talk about their, their practice settings and the cat, they call it the captain's run on like the day before their, their match, the day before their game. 
where the coaches sometimes aren't even there. The captain's out there, they're running it. It's like their final walkthrough. I think he said in Australian rules football, the coaches aren't even on the sidelines. Like it's, it's, you are doing the preparation and then you are letting the players play. And, and I mean, in every, every aspect, you are, you're handball. Um, you know, they talk about coaches the night before the game, like, you know, those guys are going to go out to dinner with each other. They're going to go and have a nice dinner and chat a little bit, but the work by that point is done for us. It's very different because we we're playing a game and we got to respond and play again within 24 hours. You know, and you're playing a night game at 7 o'clock and you're done at 10 o'clock and you're out of there at 11 o'clock and you're back within, you know, 12 hours sometimes, 13, 14 hours. Um, and, you know, you've had a rough night like the night before. You really struggled. You, you made errors. You struck out. You know, and you got to come back to work with some sort of a level of consistency uh, right in a short memory, like right away versus playing on a Saturday and then coming back and playing next Saturday. You've got a lot of time for recovery, a lot of time for – um, digging into some information versus that quick turnaround that we have in baseball, which is really unique. Uh, when you talk to guys that are coaching other sports, like more European-based sports that don't play every single day, it is a huge challenge, but it can also be a really huge advantage for us as well. Yeah, that's the the coolest part about this, man, is we can learn from so many different coaches. I know um, on our podcast, we were talking with, with Ray McIntyre and Brad Shaw and then all these other guys that are coaching now. And we're talking about Gino or Gino. Ariyama. Ariyama, yep, from Connecticut. Yep, the Connecticut women's basketball coach. And just the amount of things that we've learned from him just through YouTube and through some of his press conferences and some of the speeches he's given and just hearing people from different backgrounds, coaches that are elite. I mean, Nick Sabe and Dabo Sweeney are some of the main ones that pop into my mind just off the top of my head. But you got Corbin, you got Johnson, you've got so many of these coaches across the nation back at Jake who are great coaches that we can learn from and not even just in the college level, but professional levels. And then you got even Canadian football, Australian football, European soccer. Like, give me a break. That's a whole different breed out there, right? Like Mexican soccer. You know, you get into I, Pep Guardiola, um, the head coach of Barcelona for a lot of years. I mean, I, went, I saw them play in Barcelona in 2009. I had no idea what I was watching because there's 120,000 people there. You know, I didn't know you had some of the best players on the planet on the field. I just thought it was the coolest atmosphere I'd ever seen. But, you know, you start to look at, at coaches from other sports that are coaching elite players. And, yes, like there is a difference in the sport that you're playing and the culture of that sport. Like the culture of soccer is very different than the culture of baseball. But ultimately, they're coaching people. Like they're still coaching just people, and you have to connect with people. If you can't connect with people, it doesn't matter what sport you're coaching. You have no chance of, of being successful. So as you're, as you're connecting with guys and you're trying to figure out what makes guys tick, that's where that investment comes in individually of, I could be coaching soccer, and this dude's making $200 billion a year, whatever those guys make, and I better connect with him from a coach-player perspective, and it's my job to figure out what makes him tick it's not his job to figure out what makes me tick as a coach. So as you're doing that, and then you understand that you're also going to have players that are role guys that aren't making what the superstar guy is making. And, you know, can you take that from the Barcelona European soccer model and take that down to a JV baseball team or a high school baseball program? And I think you definitely can because it always comes back to investing in the people and the person first. Yeah. You've mentioned a couple of really big topics there. One, like being able to invest in the people and connect with the people. That's the biggest thing that, uh, at least that I've noticed in the really good coaches and what they do best. It's not always the philosophy. It's not always the strategies. It's not always their wisdom and knowledge of the game specifically, but they connect with their players. They know what makes them tick. They know how to, to talk to Tony 
and they also know how to talk to Austin because maybe something for me ticks different than for you. Maybe you need a little more fire under you, but maybe for me, I need somebody who's a little more cuddling and, and coddles me a little bit and, and, and basically just pumps me up and it makes me feel good. So there's always that different aspect between the player and coach that is very, very, very important. That's something, thankfully, I've been able to learn just from watching a lot of really good coaches and having the opportunity to play under a lot of really good coaches. And as a player, I, I wasn't the guy who was ignorant of that. I always watched, you know, I watched, hey, what is Billings, Montana? What does their short season A coach do well? Because he's been there for 40 years or something crazy. Like, what does this coach in the All-Star game do that's different? What does the coach over at Ogden do? What about in Visalia or Rancho Cucamonga? Like, what are some of these yeah. coaches' strategies when the big leaguers come down? Like, it's very interesting to see. And it's always the best coaches know how to coach the people. Like, they coach their people. And that's a huge topic that I want to get into because I think that separates the good coaches from the great coaches and the average programs and, and organizations from the great organizations is the people. And how do you connect with the people, make them feel invested, make them feel valued? Um, I know for me, Tony, going into collegiate programs, going into travel organizations, high schools, et cetera, and doing a lot of this peak performance and leadership development, I've noticed the biggest thing is one thing I, I pride myself on is connecting with the people, like the kids, because a lot they're getting a lot of different people coming at their ear, the teachers, professors, ADs, coaches, parents, et cetera, girlfriend, and all these different outside forces. But if you can't connect with that kid on their level, we're not going to get anything out of them. And that's something that I know that you do really well with your athletes. And that's why they enjoy playing for you. So what's a, maybe what's a tip for anybody out there listening that's like, gosh, I just, I don't have the buy-in from my athletes. I just can't get the buy-in from my team. How do I get the, them to buy into my philosophy, my process, and how do I connect with them on their level? Well, I think the first question about trying to figure out if they're bought into you is if you're bought into them. You know, you can't you can't just walk out and go, hey, this is our philosophy. This is what you're going to do. And think that they're going to say, okay, yes, sir, and do it. Like, that, that's just not where we're at today. It's just not. Um, we deal with something different. We have players that have families. We're dealing with guys who are married, guys that have kids. So, like, I want to know if our players have a kid, I want to know their kid's name. I want to know their wife's name so that when we're taking batting practice, and we're having a conversation, I can say, hey, like, you know, how's Grace? How's, you know, whoever? How's your son? How's your daughter? But know their name, you know, because if they see that they're one of their coaches is invested in them and cares enough to know what their kid's name is and ask about them by name, do you think that they're not going to think for a second that I actually care about them? Um, and it's okay. Like, it's, it's really okay to care. You know, there's nothing wrong with, with caring about, about your kids that you're coaching especially in high school, they're, they're going home to their family every single day. Do you ever ask them how their family's doing? Or do you just care about them for the two, three hours that they're there at your practice? Or, you know, especially the age group that a lot of coaches are dealing with, there's a lot of stuff going on in these kids' lives now. Are you really attempting to connect with them and ask how their family's doing? Because their families, for the most part, are pretty important to them. You know, do you know which kids are into playing Fortnite or whatever music? And if you can speak Fortnite language or whatever it is, that goes a long way with a guy or playing a song at practice that you know is popular that, that kids like. That, that stuff goes a long way to create a culture of um, really of caring. And there's nothing wrong with caring about your guys because those are the people that you end up spending a lot of time with. So investing in them means asking about them, you buying into them and not just saying like, this is what you are going to buy into. And then complaining about it down the road that I can't get buy-in from the players when it's not really a two-way street. 
Mm, that is, dude, you mentioned the Fortnite. I love the Fortnite analogy because these guys, even the pro guys, man, they're all in on the Fortnite right now. It's like strict gamer time. They're streaming. They're getting after it. I know a few guys that I'm buddies with still in the Dimebacks organization that they have their own Twitch channels and they, they stream this stuff and people are watching them play, man. It's crazy what's going on. But if you can speak their language, if you can connect with them on their level. And you mentioned remembering the names. That might be the biggest tool of them all. How's your wife? How's your, your son and daughter? How's your family doing at home? I know your dad was feeling a little down or he was a little sick or maybe mm-hmm. somebody just lost their job during this time. This is an ultimate time for us as coaches to build relationships with our athletes. Whether you're in high school and you've got six kids that are leaving, but you've got another 10 to 15 that are coming back, you can build those relationships with those guys and, and their families or, or girls. And then you get into college aspect and you're having these Zoom calls and still meeting with your athletes. Well, you can build these relationships with them now to where when you get in the fall, you're good to go. The culture set like the tone set let's get going we're out here same with professional level i know you guys are doing a lot for your athletes as well especially linda and helping hand because it's already tough enough to be a minor leaguer and to be in the professional season i don't even want to say just minor leaguer big leaguer as well because you've got a lot of pressures that you face a lot of external forces a lot of um, things that are out of your control and a lot of distractions that can get in the way especially when you talk about half the teams in Arizona when there's Old Town Scottsdale right down the road in Tempe and it's in season during spring training like that is a temptation of its own so Mm -hmm. um, we talk about identity you mentioned the identity earlier and this is something that I just it fuels my fire when identity is talked about but I don't know if a lot of people truly understand what your identity is Um, as an athlete now and even a coach actually as a coach is there a way that you can help encourage athletes to find their identity maybe it's the role on the team maybe it's who they are as a person um is there any tips that you've got for them to to help encourage athletes to find who they are more than just the sport they play yeah that's the biggest part of it is like there is a big difference between who are you and what do you do because you can't necessarily blend those if someone comes up to me and goes hey who are you well you know I'm, i'm katie's husband i'm Paul and Cindy's son, like that's who I am first, you know, and then what do you do? I like coach baseball. And then if you want to talk about baseball, we'll talk about baseball. If you want to talk about my family, we'll talk about my family. But understand like your identity is who you are and who you are is what you constantly do. Like your habits make you who you are. So if you can create some good habits and, and start to live by some, um, some of those things and hopefully some, some positive um, details in your life, then that becomes who you are. You know, with a role on the team, you're not always going to like your role on the team. And so your job is to either change that situation or be really good in what that role is. There's nothing wrong with working to get out of that role or better your role with the team. But while you're in that role, do that job as good as you can. I see it a lot with coaches who are constantly looking around to find another job. They're one foot in, one foot out because they're looking at, you know, okay, I'm going to do this job here, but I'm always going to be looking elsewhere to see what else has opened up. You know, I'm going to see what else has a potential opening. So you're not fully invested if you're always looking somewhere else. So when you're in a role, like be really good and dominate that role, whether you're the 10th guy on the team and the first guy off the bench, or you're the last guy, do everything in your power to become the second guy, you know, third guy, whatever it is, but do what you can to improve it. But just while you're in that role, do a good job in that role, because that's the only way that your role is going to change. If you're in a role you don't like and you're not doing that role very well, who and who and why would they move you? Like who would see you not doing a good job in that role or putting much effort into that role and think that you should be in something different just because you want to? Like we all want something different. Do something about it. 
you know, but your identity is really your, your true authentic self. Like if you can't be authentic, like love me or hate me, whatever, I'm going to be me. And that's just what it is. And, and if you don't like it, uh, because we have to have some tough conversations or you don't like the fact that I'm going to be, I'm going to care about you and I'm going to show you that I care. I, I'm sorry, but that's just kind of what you're going to get with me. Yeah. And if somebody doesn't like you, Tony, then they, I mean, I don't like them because I haven't met one person in my life that's ever said a negative thing about you, bro. And you are like, you're the ultimate, like if you had to say players coach, like we had this conversation the other day with a, what's the term of players coach? Like I think players coaching should be thrown out the window and it's more of like the, the typical players coach in, the, in a player's mind is, oh, they, they coddle me. They do everything that I need. They're super nice and they're not very hard on me. Well, sometimes a player's coach maybe might be somebody who's going to like push you a little bit and help encourage you to get to where you want and have those tough conversations that you need to have if you really want to get to the next level because I'm sure you've got some guys that you've had in professional baseball who have, they have the talent. If you're there, you have the talent. I don't care what round you're picked in. If you signed a free agent deal for $5 and a McDonald's Happy Meal, like, I don't care what you've got. You have the talent if you're in a uniform. But a lot of times we get in our own way. And it didn't really hit me, Tony, until my last season I got released and I went out and played independent ball for a month. And there was a chaplain that came in about halfway through, thankfully. And this dude, he sat us down. We had our Sunday chapel deal. And normally you just go in there for the feel good. You're like, yeah, maybe I'll get a couple knocks. I went to chapel today, right? Like everybody's going in for the different reasons. You notice when the team struggles, all of a sudden there's like 20 yeah. people in chapel oh, and the yeah, coach shows up. Yeah, it's like yeah. everybody's in there now. And then you start yeah. winning and everybody goes away or whatever happens. But yeah. um, in this specific one, there's about eight or 10 of us. And a couple of them were athletes that I've actually played with, with the D-backs. And one of the chaplains came in and he said something that forever stuck with me. And he said, look, fellas, you had a name before the game. And it just like light bulb blew up in my mind. Wisdom nugget of the day, hashtag bombs. Like it fired me up. I'm like, wow, really did have a name before the game. But a lot of the times we get caught up in what we do. Like you mentioned, hey, what do we do? Well, we're baseball players. We're baseball players, right? I got to put on the front. I got to shove my chest out. I get all the girls. I'm, I get these Instagram likes. I have a check mark on Twitter. I do this and that. But guess what? When that's stripped away from you, who are you? Like, who do you really say you are when you lay your head down at night, when you're by yourself in your pillow and it's just you at night? Like, who do you say you are? And that's really who I think and what I think identity or why I think identity is so important as athletes. But um, you mentioned that culture again. And um, with the identity, like we talk about the individual identity and how you can find your identity as an athlete and how you find more joy in who you are than what you do. Now, as a team, how do you find a team identity? You've been a part of some really good teams, and I remember when you were at UNLV specifically that uh, I think you guys had like Fetty and Rich. You guys had a really good staff and some really, really good athletes, and you might have even gone to the regionals that year. But how do you find that identity as a team rather than just the individual aspect? Is it somewhat similar? Is it start from the head coach down? Like, What does that look like? I think we, we would like to think it comes from us, I don't know that it always does. I think we can kind of set the tone, but you know, the, the teams, the best teams and the teams with the best identity and the, and the strongest cultural teams I've seen have leadership amongst the team. It's not always coming from the coach. If everything always has to come from the coach, then, then what happens if you're not there? You know, what happens if you can't be there one day? Does that culture carry on without you or not? Because who's going to hold you accountable? If I'm the one always saying, Hey, you have to do this, this, and this, and they do it because I'm telling them they have to do it. Uh, what happens if I, you know, God forbid I get ejected or whatever happens or, 
you know, I can't make it to a game because I've got a family emergency. Is, is that culture going to carry on because of things that I've put in place? Or is it going to carry on better because of what their the, the teammates have put in place and the accountability that they have to one another? They Answering to their peers is a lot stronger than answering to the coach. We, you know, especially coaching younger players, if you're coaching travel ball or high school ball, like you can take away their playing time. Um, that kind of only goes so far, you know, into – into how much they're, they're going to actually authentically buy in. And so I think unless you have strong leadership within the team, the team culture, the team identity is never going to be as strong as it could be. And it's not going to be, a, it's not, it's going to be a lot stronger that way than if the, if the head coach or manager tries to constantly be the one setting the tone every day, constantly putting their finger on them and, and telling them like they have to do it this way. So hopefully you have leaders amongst the team that can, that can hold those standards. You're spot on with that, man. Finding that leadership within your unit. Now is, and I've always been fascinated to learn this. And we both, one of our really good mutual friends, Cameron McMullen, doctor in leadership. We call him the doc. Like this dude is just a freaking wizard with leadership. But I'm fascinated to know as a coach, are you able to, like, is it enough to just say, hey, Tony, you're going to wear the C. You're the captain on this team. Or do you think, it, it doesn't have to be the best player. Say you're the best player, Tony, and I give you the captain one because you're the best player. But maybe you're not the best leader. Like, how do you develop and find those leaders on the team? And, and is it something that maybe they step up through the fall or through the summer if you're, if you're in a youth organization? If you're in uh, a professional organization, maybe it's just one of the better players or maybe one of the more mature guys. Like, how do you find that true leader on the team that you as a coach can send your message to him and he can relay your message to the athletes without you actually having to talk to the athletes. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's, this could go down a lot of rabbit holes, but I think. <laughs> Sorry, I, I set you I, up for failure, yeah, my bad. <laughs> no, no, we're good. I think, um, you know, I, I think the, the leaders really kind of emerge on their own. I, I don't really think it's necessarily a coach saying, okay, you're the captain. You know, so I just read a book called The Captain Class. It was really good. Um, these are examples of, of some elite teams throughout history. And one of the examples that they used, which I thought was a really great example, was about the Brazilian soccer team back in the day and, and Pele playing for, for that team. And he was never captain of the team. You know, Michael Jordan wasn't the captain of the Bulls. And the analogy that they used was that like Pele, if he was the captain, he had too much on his plate as being the best player and wearing the expectations of the best player as well as being the captain and having to lead the team. They, they knew his greatest strength was to just go out and be the best player on the team and to be the best player in the world and go do that and somebody else will lead the team. He's going to go play, somebody else is going to lead. And it doesn't mean it can't be the best player by any means. So that's, that analogy is difficult because it doesn't mean that it can't be. But the personality of a captain isn't just because you're the best player on the team. You know, maybe it's not the best player on the team, but it's the person who is you know, understands what their role is, is fighting to change that role, but isn't complaining about their role. You know, maybe that's the guy that people are going to look up to because they see him going about his business the right way, working hard. You know, it's easy when you're the best player and everything goes your way and you don't have to go check the lineup card every day. It's really, really easy to play when you have that stability in, in your own mind. When you're going to the yard every day and you don't know if you're going to be in the lineup, especially as, as an amateur player, as a high school player, college player, you don't know if you're in the lineup every day. If that stress starts to wear at you. So you're going to the field, look at the lineup card. You see that you're not in the lineup. You know, then it's, uh, you know, shoulders go down. And, and then, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a challenge to, 
kind of fight out of that hole the rest of the day and then you're not starting and then you need a pinch hit in the seventh inning and you've been kicking your dog for the last four hours. That's really tough to come back from versus the guy that just kind of goes about it, goes about his business, does it really well, um, you know, might be vocal, might not be vocal, might lead by example, um, but he's the guy that's a good teammate. So I don't necessarily think that somebody going up and going, hey, you're the captain. I don't know that that is necessarily the best way to, to handle that if you really feel like there's a, a strong responsibility on that captain's shoulders. Okay, that's it's really cool to learn. I mean, I just I love picking people's brains about how that works because, I mean, I'm going to ask as many coaches as I can, hey, what do you do to develop leadership? Like, where is it developed internally? Is it developed just from that specific athlete and maybe it's just a trait that they're born with? Like, what does leadership look like? There's so many unanswered questions that we can just learn more about. And I think everybody has their own specific answer and maybe different philosophies upon that. But um, you make the the instance of, you don't always have to be the best player to be the captain. And that's something that I really, really enjoy because you don't have to be the best. And like you said, Pele, I mean, the dude was wearing the best player in the nation on his chest. And now he's got to try and be the captain of the team. Like, no, it doesn't work that way all the time. Same with Jordan. Like that was, it's crazy to even know that. But um, I want to get into something and we don't have to do any names, but when you were in college specifically, like I know there were times where somebody in that you, you connect with your players really well. And there was some times where the athlete would go check the board and they see that their name's not on the list and they're not even on the pinch hit subs. Cause maybe coach even forgot to write his name even on the board. And now they're like, Oh my gosh, drag my blanket life's over. I don't know what to do. Call my girlfriend, my mom, my dad in between my brunch and I get my, my sandwich, my PBJ and I'm walking up at maybe UNLV because uh, I'm over in the 330 club and right field and those dudes are just yep. heckling us like nothing. Um, but that happens, right? And you're a coach and you notice that. You have good feel, you sense the energy. What can you do to encourage that athlete to keep their head high, think team first, and still support their teammates, even though they're not getting the results or the playing time that they specifically want. I mean, that, that, that part of it's hard, and that does take some feel and understanding, you know, guys, they don't, they, let's be honest, they don't want to hear they're, they're disappointed not playing. The last thing they want for that coach to come up and go, okay, slugger, keep your head up. You're going to be fine. Like, he's disappointed right then, you know, maybe it's maybe a time to give him a little bit of space and, you know, that might not be the best time to have that conversation. Um, you know, maybe that's once the game starts or give it an hour or give it a little bit of time and you, you know, pat the guy on the back and go, Hey, stay ready today, you know, or, or something like just trying to keep him engaged, trying to keep him positive, you know, players forget like for us as coaches, we have to make decisions. We have to make decisions every day about who's going to play and who's not going to play we know you're disappointed. We know that you've been working hard. You know, I know that when you were playing and Jordan Pierce was sitting behind you, he wanted to be in the lineup, but he's got, he's behind Austin Byler. So you might not be in the lineup today and you might not be in the lineup, lineup a whole lot this year, but your time will come. And it's hard because you, we want to always tell guys to focus on the process, focus on getting better and focus on just becoming a better player every single day. And Hey, like the, the option, the choice of you being in the lineup, or the decision of you being in the lineup is, is out of your control. You know, if the coach doesn't like a matchup, he might not play you. So most of it is, is understanding who your guys are. And maybe there is a guy that needs to get that little pat on the back a little bit earlier. And, um, you know, maybe some guys just need some space and they need to 
you know, vent a little bit and, and they're not going to be happy. You know, you can't expect them to be happy. And then telling them, hey, just think about the team. It's like, well, I will, but let's, let's give it a little bit of time and I will think about the team. Um, it's just, it's a very difficult conversation to have with guys. And sometimes it, that just comes with maturity of understanding that coaches have decisions that they have to make and, you know, that those, those things have to be made. And we're going to hit nine guys, you know, and so you might not like it, but um, you have to stay within what you can control and just keep continuing to grind and, and uh, take good at bats when you get the chance. And when your time comes, not, and this is easier said than no, but not putting this immense pressure on yourself to have to get a hit because you feel like if you don't get a hit, you're not going to see the field again. And I was that guy, you know, if I wasn't playing, I'd get a shot in the eighth inning against some dude throwing buzz. And I'm like, great, this is my at bat. And, you know, punch out. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to see the field for two weeks. Um, so that, that is difficult, but you have to try and take that pressure off yourself and just go back to, you know, the things that you've been working on in your training. It's a really good point you make about like, just having feel of how to approach the athlete. Uh, maybe it's not the right time to come say, hey, Tony, like, let me put an arm around you and, and say everything's going to be okay. Because re in reality, in your mind, you're sitting there thinking, dude, get away from yeah. me. I don't want anybody to talk to me right now, let alone tell yeah. me this. Okay. Um, no. There was, I remember one time specifically in, in pro ball, and thankfully for most of my life, I didn't have to worry too much about sitting, which I was I'm really grateful for. But there was one time, my second year of pro ball, and I remember towards the end of the season, we were in the playoffs, and I was having a struggle of a year. Um, I failed a drug test the year before. My life was in shambles. I was experiencing a ton of anxiety. I hated going to the field. It was just this, it was terrible. And it's really why I do what I do today, is to help athletes not feel like that. And I was going through these emotions and I remember getting to the field and I kept looking at the list and my name wasn't on there for about a week. I didn't play for a week and I didn't know how to sit. I never sat. I had no idea how to sit. It was so weird and foreign to me. So I'm like, okay, how do I support people and not be a selfish guy? But in reality, like I want to play, but I know I'm not doing good enough to play. All these emotions are going on. And then it really hit me in playoffs when the organization started to call up guy after guy from below our level, from low A, to come up to high A, to play in front of me. And then I'm like, okay, now I'm pissed. Like, now this is not okay. Like, it's not just the guys on my immediate team. We had four or five dudes get hurt, and now guys are getting called up from low A to come take my spot. I'm not getting the opportunity. And it was the hardest thing. I remember going, like you said, going in the eighth inning, and you got a Dominican that's throwing 95 to 98, and you're sitting there like, I'm going to kill this ball. But then again, like, I'm probably going to strike out. And if I strike out, I'm not going to play. And poor me type attitude is really hard to deal with. So any athletes out there, and I know there's some pro guys that watch this who are maybe dealing with some of these emotions as well. Like, one, understanding that you can only control what's in front of you, I think is huge. And not allowing other people, such as your manager or the GMs or your high school or college coach, to control your emotions. Like, you can take control of your emotions at any time. But a lot of the times as people, we give our emotions to our boss, our CEO, our coach the people around us rather than who we are as athletes, who we are as people. So that's a big point that you hit on, Tony. I just want to kind of elaborate on it because it's interesting to me, man. It's very interesting. Now, is there, what's like, is there a big difference between the college athlete and the professional athlete? Um, I, just from experience, I think the college level is really cool because you get that culture feel, but I know you can create that culture in, in pro ball as well. And you get to see some guys from all over the world. So what are some of the favorite, your favorite things about coaching professional baseball ever since you've been in it? And um, maybe what do you enjoy about both levels from college and pro, maybe the, the highlights of your college and professional careers? Yeah, you know, college baseball's a blast. I mean, 
you know, for me, going back to Nevada was the most awkward thing in the world. And then going in, like, coaching first base, and I had former teammates down the first base line wearing me out. Um, <laughs> Good. Just go, baby. <laughs> Believe Lou. <laughs> that, was, that was definitely interesting. Um, you know, going in, and coaching in a regional at Oregon State when I was at UNLV, coaching in a regional at Texas Tech when I was at New Mexico. You know, those are, those are things that just atmosphere-wise that is – just incredible you know and you you can't you can't really replicate that um that legit energy that that, that those places have um you know and then you get into professional baseball and you realize the the job side of it a little bit more than the excitement that happens in college baseball I'm not saying there's not excitement in minor league baseball because there absolutely is but you're you're going about it a little bit differently it's it does become a job and you you have to um you have to play with a a level of enjoyment and fun because if you if it's not fun it sucks so you have to make it fun and it has to be fun um but you do there is a obviously a professionalism aspect to it where you have to go out and you have to realize that you are doing your job Uh, for me it's nice because we know that from you know whatever time till game time we are going to do all of our preparation for the game we're going to collect as much information as we can about the opposing team, about ourselves, whatever information that we need to collect that's going to give us the best chance to win. And then we're going to get out on the field with the players and we're going to put them through a workout and we're going to hopefully get the best quality work that we possibly can and figure out what those guys need to get ready to play that day and get them prepared, have some sort of a long-term goal in mind because we have a more realistic timetable in professional baseball than, than in college baseball. So it's keeping a long-term goal in mind, preparing them to play that night. And then when they go out and play, allowing them to play, you know, take the reins off, like you fail and pat them on the butt and, and you move on. That's it. And we're going to go right back to work tomorrow. You know, so today is not a bigger game than tomorrow's game. And it's not more important than yesterday's game. You know, it's not like in college where you lose Friday, Saturday, and you go into full-fledged panic mode on Sunday because you don't want to get swept at home we know like we are going to lose games. We're going to have an eight game losing streak and that's not going to be fun to go through, but then we're going to rattle off, you know, 12 out of 15 and that is going to be fun. So you're, you're going to go more along with those, just the ebbs and flows of the season, Um, the ups and downs, you know, you kind of understand ahead of time that you're going to wear them out, um, but you just got to, you got to deal with them. You know, so the fun part is, is going about it every day and understanding the short term and the long term goals. And then, like you said, Dealing with players from other countries, it's just, it's an absolute joy because they bring such a different perspective than your run-of-the-mill college players. Um, Culturally, it's just, it's, it's a lot of fun to, you know, learn some Spanish and, you know, trying to learn some, um, you know, we got a couple players from Taiwan, Japan, you know, trying to learn some words and and phrases and, um, you know, just having conversations with them is, it's just a really, really special thing that, that we have. That's probably the most special thing about professional baseball, man, is the different backgrounds of everyone. You've got a West Coast kid who's, who's straight Cali and hanging loose. There's a Hawaiian on your team. There's a dude from Japan. You got Tokyo. You've got a dude from Venezuela um, who speaks no English, uh, along with the Japanese guy. And then you've got a dude from Mexico, which speaks a different Spanish. And then you've got a guy from down south who hasn't seen any other ethnicities besides white for the last 10, 15 years. It's unbelievable, right? Like so many backgrounds, so many that's, different people. And that's fun. That you see some of those guys and, and from our perspective as coaches, when you start to see some of the bonding that takes place between guys, it's like, okay, that's 
Like something, something right now is going good because you're watching two dudes that have never met, that have very, very um, different backgrounds, very different upbringings, obviously way different, um, you know, cultures and, and just geographically. And then all of a sudden, like they're bonding. They, most, a lot of times they don't even speak the same language, but there's a bond that happens between guys. And it's funny watching that take place um, because it's just the most like real connection between people that you can, you can possibly see. It's so cool. It's it's beautiful, man. It's absolutely beautiful. You mentioned off off topic here or off cast. You said you're learning Spanish right now. So how's that going? Tell tell the viewers, man. How's learning Spanish going? Is it tough to learn it when we're not in high school? Because I took it in high school, but I forgot it. So, uh, like, how, how's that process been going for you? I'm working at it. Uh, <laughs> definitely, it's, it's it's been more of a challenge than I was uh, I was probably anticipating. Um, you know, being able to put together like sentences, the hard part for me is understanding it. I can read it and I, and understand what it is, but you know, I'm not, players aren't going to write me a note in Spanish that I have to be able to translate. So it's, it's definitely interesting, you know, trying to learn some words and, and some relevant words that can help guys to at least communicate with me so I can understand them right now. Like, especially with this distance, it's, it's a lot easier because I can type something into um, Google Translate and copy and paste it into WhatsApp, and we're going to have a full-on conversation and um, be really connected. So it's probably in that sense a little bit better than if it's in person because they can be, get really detailed and, and talk a little more freely right now. So it's okay. That's so cool, man. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And just the fact that you're trying to learn there is upgrading the toolkit, <laughs> man. We always talk about continuing to upgrade, and now you've got something else under your belt. Hey, now you can communicate with the Spanish speaking athletes. And I think that's a great Hopefully. tool to have. Uh, I hope right. so. At least the WhatsApp works, man. You can translate yeah. it in there and everything. No doubt. Uh, well, Tony, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I'm going to ask one more question before we go. But yeah. um, before we go, where can people find you on social media or in person or wherever it is? Like, where can people find you if they want to ask you some questions, pick your brain about the different levels and all of that? Uh, I mean, if they know you, they can reach out and get my number from you. Um, you know, you can send me a message on Twitter or something. I, I'm not, um, I don't put out a lot of like baseball content, not for any other reason other than I just like to have fun on it. Um, and you know, I follow a lot of people and, and some topics I enjoy. Uh, so yeah, but you can definitely find me on there. Um, yeah, all the social media. Actually, we just did a catcher's competition on TikTok. So I just downloaded TikTok. Um, oh, let's go. That's, that's a different life. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're oh, yeah. ingrained you're ingrained in the youth culture now yeah. and you're officially a tiktok yeah, trying to <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome man let's go yeah. um well my last question for you tony is what do you want to achieve out of your career like where do you want to be one day do you want to be a, a division one manager do you want to be a junior college do you just want to coach college baseball do you want to be a manager in professional ball or at the mlb level like where do you want to go with your career and what are kind of your future aspirations down the road? Um, all right. So I'm going to give you the, the worst answer possible to that question. Um, I, I don't, I don't have any goals. I, I, I just don't. And I, and I, I say that because, you know, a few, a couple of years ago, it was, you know, when I, when I first got into the Dodgers and, and started to understand the culture of how, how we do things and, and how people move around and how people, um, how their jobs evolve and you know having been at every other level since then or, or before then you know 
I, I, they came, the Dodgers came to me and they, you know, after a couple of years and they said, would well, you have any interest in managing? I said, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, this opportunity came up and I was, you know, floored by it, to be honest with you. And really stoked to get the opportunity. So I didn't go to work every day thinking like, I want to be a manager. It would be cool. I mean, obviously I thought it in the back of my mind, like how fun would that be to be a manager? But there's not, my goals don't change. Like if I said, I want to be a manager, would I change the way I go to work every day or do anything different because that's my goal? You know, I, I've got a job, whether I'm managing, whether I'm a bench coach, a hitting coach, you know, whatever my job is, like I've got a group of guys that I've got to coach and I'm going to coach them the best that I can. And if I'm sitting here and going, hey, I really want to, I want to manage in double A. Well, then what happens if I manage in double A? And do I just forget about wanting to manage in triple A or the big leagues? Or, or if I get to the big leagues, um, have I achieved it? And now you no longer have to do anything because you've reached the pinnacle. You know, so it's hard for me. I'm just not a big, like, I'm gonna, this is my goal. I'm going to set this out, set out to do this and, and try to do it because I feel like that's going to kind of stop your goal. My, we talked about the other day, my vision and my mission is to be as prepared as possible every day and go out and coach my guys, whoever those guys are, the best that I can. If that leads me to you know, managing or you know, a fourth coach role in double A one day, then that's great. I'm going to do the best I can there. It leads me to the big leagues. Great. It takes me back to college one day. Like, I mean, who knows? We don't have any idea where we're going to be. Um, so really it's just about, it's about a daily thing for me and, and just doing the best job I possibly can wherever I'm at. The really good answer is not the worst answer in the world. That's absolutely incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. But it's true. I mean, you, you embrace everywhere you go and you embrace the roles that you have. Um, you're the epitome of that. And, and you totally, you're just a great person in general. And I think good things happen to good people, especially over Thank a long you. period of time. So the more that you keep doing that, man, good things are going to happen wherever it takes you. Um, I know this year, once things get going, ideally we can actually go out there and play. I'm really excited to see how you manage and how that works. And I'll be watching from afar, man, because I'm super excited to peep into it. I know Curtainian was just there, um, and now he's in Rancho and doing his thing. But it's just great to see you guys making moves, man, and, and impacting athletes at everywhere that you've gone and different levels of athletes is the best part about this. And you've had so much experience with this. Um, I just thank you, man. I'm grateful for you. And thanks for popping on the show today, Tony. Absolutely, buddy. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man.